Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Welcome back to Black Letter. Thanks for joining us. Today, David Kiesling, an attorney in Oklahoma with a lot of federal litigation experience and transactional experience, and with him today are the principals of the Shoemaker Company, and I'll let David introduce the principals and talk a little bit about the work he's doing with them to kick this show off. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so let me, let me introduce you to Kevin Shoemaker, who is sitting right here to my right, as well as behind him is Robert Sutton. Kevin's the founding principal and uh, president of Shoemaker Corporation 3, which is a Nevada corporation. Robert um, is the chief operating officer. He is uh, really developing the technology side and the technology business and services that they offer. It's a broad scale MSP and they do a ton of work locally across Oklahoma and outside of the state of Oklahoma. What's an MSP, David? Go ahead. Uh, MSP is a uh, managed service provider. Uh, Robert, you want to kind of okay. go? Yeah, it's, a, it's effectively uh, IT consulting and outsourced IT services that you wouldn't normally be able to find in-house or if you want to outsource services that you would normally do in-house, but it is high-level enterprise IT consulting and IT services. Great. What kind of clients do you guys focus on? What's your, what's your sector? Oh, we actually cover a wide, uh, different number of industries from uh, law offices all the way to manufacturing, all the way to medical. Uh, so there, we don't really isolate in any one field. We are actually all over the place. We have, we have content creators. Uh, we have um, people who are working in critical infrastructure. Uh, we've got critical infrastructure clients. So, I mean, we really cover a broad spectrum. Anywhere from making greetings all the way up to manufacturing parts for um, the Department of Defense. How big is Shoemaker Company then at this point? We have Shoemaker Corporation 3. We have right at 20 employees. Our headquarters is based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, downtown. Um, We have satellite offices in nine other locations um, across the country and in Canada. We're in the process of growing and we're very glad that we came across David so we can not only help us with our current issues, but, you know, be proactive and help us solve issues before they actually start. Yeah. So David told me a, a little bit. He said that um, he's kind of swooped in here. You guys had some, I guess, troubles and you have a federal court case going. And, you know, who better to call in a federal court case than a former Marine? And and I don't I don't resent that I'm a, I'm a former army officer but I think Marines are fantastic and I think David is too David what what kind of work are you guys doing for Shoemaker three right now Well so originally uh, we found the circumstance where Shoemaker had some employees and a state claim that preexisted us Okay uh, that had left and used resources of their corporation to go 
to another business and then try to leverage the resources that they brought oh, to make our meaning customer lists, things of that nature. We supplanted the prior council. We uh, were able to resolve our, what I would say, the pleading challenges of prior council, got the court to agree to allow us to come in and resubmit a new complaint and fully vetted the challenges they were existing. And then we're moving forward with that right now. And then in addition to that, their current business is a purchased corporation and the purchase agreement that was previously entered into uh, some years ago had some challenges in terms of the way it was being followed. We found that there were some, what we would call shenanigans maybe uh, by the sellers that were undercutting the value of the company, even at the time of the sale that were not disclosed and some continuing behavior that's actually being investigated by department of justice. And uh, we were able to step in and file a big complaint. And this is a seven plus figure type of complaint. Gotcha. So hopefully at the other end of this case, they're going to be able to pay Shoemaker Corporation 3. They were paid million dollars by Shoemaker Corporation 3 for the purchase. And uh, hopefully they haven't um, divested themselves of all of those dollars. And then there's some additional money owed, which gives us some leverage to with the court. And, um, and most importantly, it's the client relationships that we're trying to protect because those are the lifeblood of the going forward business for Shoemaker. Because those clients, you know, those, gotcha. those are those are significant resources on an annual basis, significant seven-figure resources. And so, how have you guys um, at either of you at, at Shoemaker found working with David? Kind of what's what's been the? Is this your first litigation, or is this the? Have you been involved in litigation before? Actually, you know, um, I'm glad that you asked that question because um, I, I've owned businesses for over 20 years and. I've okay. dealt with several attorneys um, in different states and, and in Oklahoma, and honestly, I've never had a, a very good experience with them. Um, I just—they don't communicate. They just—we never know what's going on, and um, I've never really had anything that was huge like what we're going through right now. So when I did have this come up, I, I had an acquaintance. Um, that was a, uh, a current sitting uh, county judge. And I started asking questions about different lawyers that he had seen in court and anybody he would recommend and giving you know some generals of our case without giving out too much information. Right off, it immediately recommended David and, and you guys' group. And I was so very thankful. And he, he actually sent David my, my information um, David called me within 20 minutes, uh, which wow. blew me out of the water. Um, I've never had an attorney actually call me, you know, within a week, let alone in 20 minutes. If we schedule a meeting. some challenging attorneys then. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, and, and they weren't cheap. I mean, it, it was horrible and for the service that we got. And we actually scheduled a meeting the very next day and we come in and we sat down with David and his team. And I felt so much better after, after talking to him and really validating our arguments and, and the things that were going on. And, and, you know, it's terrifying going through litigation, especially something like this, you know, we paid millions of dollars for a purchase of a business and it was being basically destroyed from the inside out um, for people that right. you would think just, would leave what you know leave you alone after you paid them all that money 
Well, so can I hone in on that a little bit? So this Absolutely. is kind of the, you know, so today it's a little bit of a case study about what you're going through. And I have seen so many cases where uh, somebody sells a business to, you know, the subsequent purchaser, you guys, and then they try to keep their business contacts. And I assume that they probably signed a non-compete with you as part of this, or they gave you some kind of benefits or rights to the business that they wouldn't take the things they've taken. I mean, tell me a little bit about the facts behind this, because that's, I'd love to dig into that a little bit and kind of understand the position you're taking, if you can do that. Yeah, we, we can. So the, the complaints are public record. And, and so functionally, that's exactly what's happened in, in the sense that there was an asset purchase agreement. So it wasn't a stock sale. So we got just what we purchased. Gotcha. And then there were exclusions, obviously, from what we did purchase. And so when we get a list, for example, of all the assets that are going to be purchased, and then we find out that list is fraudulent. Some of those relationships oh have been burned long before. That's an example. And then the continued uh, use of the, the intellectual property. So they, they buy the IP. This organization then goes out. The two sellers go out, open organizations with almost the exact same name instantly and start competing, even though there's non-competing. Wow. And they communicate directly to clients. They change assets that have been purchased, clients that have been purchased. They change the billing addresses. So those clients will start mailing stuff to their house rather than well, just. So, so David, can, I'm confused. What makes what made the sellers think? Because to me, this just seems sort of insane a little bit. But what, <laughs> why would they must have had? Well, so just I just asked this in all fairness. They must have had some kind of internal rationale, or in their defense of the case, they must have had some kind of rationale to say, "Yeah, we sold the business, we signed all these, but the reason we're doing it is because of X, Y." Like, what was their rationale? How yeah, are they, they defending their actions? They actually didn't defend their actions. What they did is they, they oh. the typical uh, play that when you don't have anything else, then you just point the finger back at the other side. And so that's what they've done. They really haven't come up with good justifications. They've been completely dishonest during the course of, of, of the litigation up to this point. And, and they filed counterclaims, which looked like they were functionally copying and pasting our claims. And just trying to make them back on, right? And and you know, you know, twenty plus years of federal experience in litigation, when you see that type of general response in pleadings, you go, look, if you have no details, you make it obvious, even to the most casual observer, when you send back a cut and paste response. And even more interesting and more telling, we know in federal litigation, Rule Twenty Six requires that we make initial disclosures at the beginning of the case even before right. motions have been decided. And they didn't even send initial disclosures. Of course, we send them a request, why, why are you late? They copy and paste our initial disclosures and send them back to us. As wow. their so this is 26A1 disclosures. Yeah. You got it. As evidence of who is going to know about this case and where might documents be located and things of this nature. So they don't have anything organic to their claims. And, and Kevin will tell you, um, and Robert, through the course of developing this, we, we went through a deep, deep dive. I think uh, two four-inch binder notebooks of content, single-spaced details in order to make certain that our pleadings weren't general in nature and that we weren't spending their money to go after a drive or to go after something that would be dismissed later on. 
but rather we were doing our due diligence to the bands as Rule 11 would require in Rule 10. In the federal well, that's what I was curious about. Have you guys thought about a Rule 11 on their counterclaims? I mean, it sounds like you might have a basis for it. Yeah, absolutely. And so where we think that the strength for and, us- And just for, sorry, Dave, just because our sure. listeners might, be, um, might not be litigators. So Rule 11 is essentially a federal rule. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it. So I won't. Sure. <laughs> since it's, you're, it's essentially, you're, you're the star of this show, but yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the sanctions rule. Yep. Sure. And and every time you sign a document as a lawyer, you're you're really controlled through a series of rules, starting with Rule Eight, Rule Ten, Rule Eleven, and it says that you have vetted these issues and you know you're not making frivolous arguments, not for the purposes of harassment, unnecessary or undue delay or expense, but that there is some merit to the claims to the extent that you can know. And so that's what they, uh, that's what happens when you are a lawyer in our situation, you receive something back that you know is completely false. Then you can issue what's called a rule 11, where you give them notice of a motion to dismiss, you attach a conforming copy of your motion to dismiss, and they have a 21 day safe harbor to dismiss. If they fail to dismiss during that 21 days, I'm functionally quoting the law at this point. If they fail to dismiss within that 21 days, then if the court later dismisses, not only can you seek sanctions and get them against the parties, but also against your opposing counsel, because they're the last threshold to making certain that the claims they make have have been in some way vetted as being meritorious. And what we're trying to do is prevent lawyers from sitting down with a client, the client telling them a huge tale. And the lawyer says, sounds good to me. I'm filing it without ever looking for a document to justify it, without ever looking to the law to see whether those are claims that are legit. Because what happens is now Kevin and the entire corporation are stuck paying substantial fees on an hourly basis. Right. Nobody wants right. to be in litigation. Yeah, Right. It's not a good business plan, right? It's, 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 a, it's a necessary it. evil, yeah. but you have to do it. And they're paying unnecessary fees because our opposition is filing frivolous and non-meritorious motions and, and counterclaims. And so we're in that process now where we filed a motion to dismiss. I think on the nature of the claims themselves, what we're going to have to do is probably file the Rule 11 prior to our Rule 56, which is right. a summary judgment motion, because I think that's where it will be most vetted, most likely to have success. So let me ask you, Kevin, if you could go back in time uh, before you bought this business, what do you think, could you have avoided this litigation through some diligence effort or through some, I mean, obviously the answer is these guys are crooks. You probably shouldn't have done business with them in the first place, but setting that aside, saying you still want to do the deal and buy the company that became Shoemaker 3, what would you have done differently? What could you have done? Or do you think, if you know, uh, that might've prevented it? And maybe nothing would have prevented it, but if, if you have a thought, that'd be great. Sure. Um, you, you know, honestly, I, I would not, um, having to look back at it, I would definitely do this again. Um, the, the business is, is a great business model. Um, it has such great potential. To be honest with you, I don't know if there's anything that I could have seen ahead of time. Right. Because they did everything that was just so behind the scenes and... Um, I just it's so crooked you couldn't have predicted this. Yeah. yeah, there was because there was actually a valuation company hired specifically to go through and value this company at, as part of that purchase process during these months and months 
of negotiations. That being said, and this is, I've been very critical of Kevin's prior counsel out of Nevada, who seemed to give a summary review of the purchase agreement, but didn't really right. get their, their heels dirty in the mud where the business was taking place. They never came to Oklahoma. Didn't look at the diligence. Yeah. That's exactly right. So it, it diligence can be in many forms. It can be bare minimum, or it can be what you want to protect you. If you're going to brain have brain surgery, you don't want the guy that says, yes, I read the Cliff Notes version. You want the guy that says, I do it every day. I, I'm in the operating room every single day, and I can tell you all the details. And so they got the Cliff right. version representation. And any company making big purchases or creating liabilities or taking on assets, they need more than that. They need people that will actually go on-site location, their own form of audit functionally, by making certain that what they're getting is what they say they're getting and looking at sourcing all of the information that's being provided. And not even not even the companies that do the valuations can be counted on that because they only know what the person gives them. They don't know about the, right. yep. the, the truth or, the, or certainly the veracity of what they've been given. And so we like to put a different layer on that. We like to go two or three layers deep and then give some amount of assurance that we feel confident or comfortable that the information provided is accurate particularly so, a multi-million dollar transaction. Yeah. And, we, and we did the standard due diligence as far as looking at their tax returns to make sure they match the financial right. records, bank accounts. We looked at that. You know, everything seemed to, to match up. Means were free. Yep. We right. just had bad actors. Yeah. And, it, yep. and exactly what David's saying, it would have been nice to, but with that said is, you know, I try to be a trusting person, but in this case, I'm, and you know, going back, I would definitely rather have something a little more deeper be investigated than than what we did do. I mean, from this whole experience, Kevin and and David looking in on it, hindsight as well, but what, who we're talking to are corporate counsel, um, outside counsel and business owners. So if there are three things that you could take away from this whole experience from day one, looking at this business and buying it, uh, having people be crooked behind the scenes, despite the perfect outer appearance, and then having to deal with your first litigation counsel, and now with David coming in, what are the three big learning points you've taken away from this that you could share with another business owner who might be looking at a business and you might say, well, look, here's what I've learned. Think about these three things. You know, what, would, what do you think those would be? Uh, I mean, maybe is, I, I know counsel, <laughs> to me, yeah, it sounds yeah. like one is yeah. have the right lawyer kind of seems to be yeah. an overarching theme. And you know that's a challenge, obviously, personality and fit. But what I've taken from what you and David have both said is you need a lawyer who's going to dig deep and look closely at the business and not just do the legal side. You need more than a lawyer. You need a counselor. Exactly. Um, right. That sounds like it's kind of takeaway one. And then takeaway two from a litigation perspective, and it's hard if you're a layperson to judge it, but if somebody's crooked, um, I think the takeaway that I got from what you were saying, because you said you would still buy this business. Yes. is that you can't predict or manage everything. Even if it's perfect on the outside, it may be rotten on the inside, and you can't always know that. And you have to be prepared to take the next step and manage that. But you just have to realize that that's just part of being a business person yes. and being in business. Uh, and then the third takeaway I, I think I see is that um, finding the right litigator is more than the yellow pages. You went to a county judge, you got a personal referral, you met with David in person, and you got a sense of who he was, and finding a lawyer who's the right fit for your business, somebody who's who's both aggressive and who manages, who gives you time and doesn't look at you as another, you know, 
hourly billing project. I think it sounds like those are kind of the three. Those are the three takeaways I've gotten listening to you guys. I don't know if they're right, but um, yeah. you know, oh, if you want to edit those. <laughs> yeah, my my only edit is actually not an edit. It's just yeah. kind of underscoring is is the beginning of any of these big transactions. It the lawyer, it is your best friend. If you can find the right one that will actually invest in your success. And I've told Kevin and these guys for since we've met them, look, I want to be your lawyer and I want to help solve this problem. But 25 years from now, I still want to be your lawyer. And and so we don't we yes. just don't want to fix today's problem. We want to look over the horizon and constantly see what's coming, have a proactive approach. Let me call you on Saturdays if I need to and Sundays, which we have been we do every every other week. It's a seven day work week here, basically six days every week, but every other week we've been doing sevens. And and so what happens is in circumstances like that, we need availability and they need yeah. to be available. And we don't want lawyers just talking to their clients when it's payday. We want them proactively engaged in understanding their business. So one of the things that we try to do, and and this is the kind of lawyer that guys like Kevin need, right? We try to look at industry material specific to their business. So we'll know the jargon. We'll know what's the hot issue. We'll know what's, um, let's say, uh, typical for Kevin's business so we can be more proactively engaged in that. It's tough to have a one-stop shop. But if you can find people that have a good enough team, like we did DBL, for example, where we have other people within our business that we we can go to, whether it's Jeff Deresk in Atlanta, whether it's Mary Witzel um, in Leesburg or Destin here in our Tulsa team or myself, those are all examples of people that have put time in dealing with issues relating to this case or cases that have come out of Shoemaker. Uh, We've been able to kind of amass that. It's great if you can do that. If you can't, enter at your own risk on these multi-million dollar transactions because it takes a deep dive. But what he was saying is, you know, the, the whole attorney up front um, that would have been great. I mean, since I didn't really have any past experience very good with attorneys, then you know I mainly just relied on CPAs and banks and and stuff to to look at the documents. And yeah, these documents match. You know, they're financially they are what they say they are. Um, but it is very important that you do have that counsel up front. You know, Tom, there's an advantage to have counsel evaluating the front side of this before it becomes litigation that has litigated these issues because you you are looking at things from the perspective of someone that has seen all the dirt before and so you're you will uncover a stone um that other people may look past um, because we just become professionally skeptic about every line in every contract every person anytime someone gives us a, a declaration yeah, we, we test it to make certain that the facts yeah. they provided us are meaningful. And that's a lot more work and it comes with a bigger price tag. But if we had done that in the beginning of this case, it would actually have been considerably cheaper. Well, so now I'll say, so I'm glad you guys found each other. I'm glad the attorney thing that's a huge takeaway is that not every deal is going to be perfect and you won't always know if everything looks good. Find the right attorney, one who's going to dig deep and um, I- I'm glad you guys found each other. It's just awesome. Thank you both for joining us on the Black Letter Podcast. Uh, I wish you guys the best of luck. And you know, you don't need luck because you've got David. 
so here's the hard charger. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you very much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. And the people who listen to the podcast appreciate hearing from you about your experiences and they can, so they can leverage that experience and they may make some of the same mistakes, the ones you can't predict, but at least they'll have the right team or know how to find the right team uh, to deal with it. Thanks yep. again, guys. And um, I'm just going to thank you, thank our listeners again for joining us in the Black Letter Podcast. Download us on iTunes uh, or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn and visit blackletterstudios.com for more information. Thanks again for joining us on Black Letter. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com. 